0: Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from ABV through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program.
1: Hi, welcome to Dermalogs. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy, joining you from the East Coast of Canada for the last episode of season three of Dermalogs. This episode is a little bit different than our usual, in that we're going to be covering sun awareness and what the Canadian Dermatology Association does for Sun Awareness Month. So we'll be taking questions from the general public as well as dermatology residents. I'm joined today by Dr. Sunil Kalia, who's the National Chair of the Sun Awareness Working Group at the Canadian Dermatology Association. And his day job is an Associate Professor of Dermatology at the University of British Columbia and sees dermatology patients every day. But Sunil's joining me today with his National Chair Sun Awareness Working Group hat on. Thank you so much for joining me, Sunil. Welcome to Dermalogs.
0: Thanks a lot, Carrie, uh, for having me as the special guest today. I'm honoured here to talk about a topic that I'm very excited about, uh, talking about sun awareness. So thanks a lot for having me.
1: Well, listen, it's a pleasure. And I know that lots of people have lots of questions about sun protection, sun awareness, skin cancer screening, and I think we'll be able to touch on pretty much all of those topics as we go. So let's kick it off. First thing, just to frame it, what is Sun Awareness Month? What are we doing here?
0: Yeah, so why is this really important, talking about sun awareness, uh, so a little bit about the sun, right? Like UV exposure in dermatology, we always focus on, uh, okay, what, what is bad about sun exposure? And I, I do want people to remember that it, what we can think about with sun is that the yin and yang of ultraviolet exposure, right? So there are some mm-hmm. good benefits of sun exposure um, here today. What we will be talking about is highlighting what some of the hazards of too much sun exposure are. And what I am really excited about is that this year, for the first time, what the Canadian Dermatology Association has done is has extended it from a week-long campaign to a month-long campaign. So we'll be sending constant reminders to the general public about what we should be doing to protect ourselves from excessive sun exposure.
1: Awesome. And you know what, I think we could probably have sun awareness year if it were up to dermatologists, (laughs) but but we'll take a month, right? So first thing that I thought would be good to kind of cover would be just talking about sun safety. So when someone says to you or asks you, you know, what do you think of when you think of sun safety? Or what does that mean to you? What kind of stuff comes to mind?
0: Yeah, so like your comment about it being a year-long campaign, like the reason why we kind of highlight May as the key target month is that this is like when the days start getting warmer, the UV intensity starts getting stronger. Mm-hmm. So we need to kind of remind ourselves of why is it important to protect ourselves from having too much sun exposure. And the harms of too much sun exposure can be broken down into acute and chronic sun exposure. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna be very broad here, though we usually focus on skin cancer lots, I am gonna be broad just to focus on all the aspects in dermatology, as dermatologists, as a dermatology residents, or even for the general public of why uh, excessive sun exposure can be hazardous. So in terms of the acute sun exposure, we can all relate to those sunburns. Mm-hmm. Sunburns are painful. And, and that's why when we talk about hazards of sun exposure, when you talk about sunburns, people do get it, right? Everybody remembers that painful sunburn. But the other effects of um, acute sun exposure can be that it does dampen the immune system. So therefore, when it dampens the immune system, we can see a reactivation of certain infections such as herpes virus. And also we can see in the acute forms of uh, uh, aggravation of our photodermatoses, those conditions that are exacerbated by light exposure. So that's things like polymorphous light e- eruption, retinic parigo, or connective tissue diseases. Mm-hmm. So that's what we see in the acute form. And then in the chronic form, of excessive sun exposure over years and years, what we do see is we see photoaging or aging of the skin. So that's all those sunspots, that wrinkling mm-hmm. of the skin. And then all, ultimately what we focus lots about and the big public health concern, of course, is skin cancer. So melanomas, basal cell carcinomas, the squamous cell carcinomas is why ultimately it's important to protect ourselves from the sun.
1: I feel like patients always like to tell the story about the one time they got burned and that, you know, their mom had to like peel off their skin. And I'm, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I myself had one of those episodes when I was a young kid, so I can feel their pain. But, you know, I think that um, it's really important to think about all those aspects of sun exposure. So thanks for laying that out really nicely for us. When you talk to patients about sun protective habits, what kind of things do you cover broadly? And then maybe we'll get a little bit more specific.
0: Yeah, so talking about like sun protection habits, it's important to think about the whole package. And I do think the order of importance is is the steps that I'll talk about, right? Mm -hmm. So the biggest thing is, if you can avoid excessive UV exposure, sun exposure, when it is most intense, And therefore, in the Canadian Dermatology Association, we'll say around 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. or 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., depending on where you live. So Mm -hmm. when it's midday peak sun and a couple hours before, a couple hours after is where you should avoid sun exposure. And um, I do think that's where... Uh, looking at the UV index is also helpful to see how strong the sun will be that day. So sometimes you may need to go a little bit broader in those hours. Mm-hmm. And we should all know as Canadians that UV index, right? Because the UV index was invented here in Canada. So something that we should be <laughs> proud of. Yeah, we should know a little bit about it. So that's the, the big thing, the first take it message. So just because we're doing the other steps that we'll talk about later on does not mean that we can get more sun exposure, right? Right. And then seeking shade is very important and when you look at seeking shade it's, it's important to look at what type of shade structure, or shade uh equipment that we're using. And so therefore like obviously something that's a concrete very thick structure provides better protection than uh than uh, something that's a very thin fabric, right? Mm-hmm. And so getting that Good shade structure is very important, and something that protects you at all angles would be helpful if possible. And then uh, wearing the protective clothing, right? And uh, I tell people there's, a, there's an easy ways to remember what something is if you have like a good acronym, a good way of remembering it. And with clothing, I think it's those C's. So it's mm-hmm. the composition or content of um, the clothing. So we know that certain fabrics are better protective. So denim or polyester provides better protection. And then the construction of the clothing, something that's tightly woven mm-hmm. provides better protection. And a good way of testing that fabric is holding it to light. And if you hold it towards light and a lot of that, um, if some light comes through that fabric, that's not a good sign, right? <laughs> so that's probably not providing adequate protection Fair. against UV exposure. And then the color. So darker colors do provide better protection. And mm-hmm. then the coverage, so see for coverage and something that you're, you know, those long sleeve shirts, the uh, long pants, if you can, a hat that's broad, a uh, broad rimmed mm-hmm. or circumferentially would be better protection than exposing parts of your skin. So like we mentioned all these things, right, but you can't be always perfect in all of them. That's why it's good to have these different steps uh, mm-hmm. to provide protection. So. If if that clothing, protective clothing doesn't work, then that's where our sunscreens come into play, right? Mm-hmm. And so therefore, using a good sunscreen, this broad spectrum is important. And that's where we apply it to those areas that we can't get adequate protection from those other mechanisms that we talked about. So if your if your hands are not being protected, your face is not being protected, then that is where you apply the sunscreens. Mm-hmm. And so a little bit about applying the sunscreens, I think the easy way of how much to apply is very important. And Correct, so yes. the, yeah. the rule I have, there's all these different rules that somebody can use, but I like the teaspoon method. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I like the teaspoon method is because when people say to apply an ounce over the whole body, I'm hoping that most people are not applying an ounce, uh, in other words, applying it to their whole body every time because mm-hmm. we talked just about clothing and all the other mechanisms. So you should be applying it to limited areas and not using other forms of protection, right? right? So the teaspoon method, essentially what that means is that the, um, wh- how you're doing that is that you would be applying a teaspoon to the arm one arm, a teaspoon to the other arm, and then a teaspoon to the front of the trunk, a teaspoon to the the posterior trunk, and a teaspoon to the leg, a teaspoon to the other leg, and then a teaspoon to the face and neck area. So the a good way, the reason why I like that is because let's say you need to apply it only to the face and neck area, that's a teaspoon. You need to apply mm-hmm. it on like the arms. You're looking at a teaspoon, right? So that's a good way of remembering it, and therefore you can make sure you have adequate coverage.
1: That's actually a really great method. I've not heard that one. I'm used to the like, you know what a shot glass and that's like your whole body. And yeah, you know, people yeah. in the Maritimes, what a shot glass <laughs> is like. um, and you know, I think that that's, I think what you, you started out with was, you know, and I think people are very used to this during COVID times, like layers of protection and obviously layers of protection, uh, when it comes to sun protection are vitally important. Now, let's get into a couple details about sunscreens. So to your point, the amount with which you apply it is really important. But um, how about a few other details? So let's start with one of the questions from one of our listeners. reached the world headquarters of the dermalogs podcast
0: hi my name is Marin and i'm calling from ottawa my question is about the different types of sunscreen levels so sbf 30 50 versus 100 um so what's the difference between all of these and is one better than the other um and if so by how much i'd really appreciate you answering this question and i really uh look forward to listening to the next podcast yeah, that's a great question about the SPF level and how important is it? Uh, I th- I, what I'm going to do just so we understand the answer to the question is take it one step back. And something that's important to understand is what is SPF? Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at those sun rays, how it can be divided up to is the the different types of electromagnetic radiation that we're tending to get from the sun, right? And so some of that is ultraviolet radiation. Lots of that is visible radiation, and lots of it is infrared radiation. And in terms of the ultraviolet rays, a good thing is UVC, which is very carcinogenic, but that gets blocked by uh, the ozone layer. So what Mm -hmm. we get exposed to is ultraviolet B and ultraviolet A. Ultraviolet B is responsible for causing that redness, that burning of the skin, and ultraviolet A is what's responsible for causing tanning and uh, for causing wrinkling of the skin. And so, when we're looking at, at a sunscreen bottle, like there's a couple of things that are very important. Um, a lot of people focus right on the SPF level, but we need to think about, you know, the the other factors of protection, the UVA protection as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's why when you first look at the sunscreen bottle, looking at broad spectrum coverage is very important, and then you can look at the SPF level. And currently, right now, the Canadian Dermatology Association recommends sunscreens of at least uh, an SPF of thirty. And what does that mean? When you have 30, that means that when you have your um, protected skin, so that when you apply sunscreen, it um, it it blocks out 30 times more of uh, UV radiation compared to that of unprotected skin. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of misconception. People think that it's actually that you're supposed to you can spend 30 times longer. It's 30 times longer before you get burned compared to unprotected skin. But it's actually that calculation of UV radiation. Right. But good thing is they they relate to each other quite well. And the take home message here is that an SPF of 30 is pretty good, that it blocks out a fair amount of that UVB radiation. It prevents those burns. Mm -hmm. But there is clinical evidence. There's been clinical studies showing that in SPF 50 and even SPF 100, there was a few studies done anyways showing that they do provide uh, prevent burns in people that are skiers or different environments, even on the beach as well. Mm-hmm. So we think that when people are under-applying sunscreen, which we know that the general public, we everybody under-applies. You, you don't put that amount that we're, we're suggesting. Sunscreens yeah. are constantly coming off. They're being wiped off. So therefore, if you can find one that's higher, that's probably
1: better. But uh, at least an SPF of 30, we say. Okay, when you're looking at labels, you're obviously going to look for that broad spectrum piece. You're going to look for, you know, what the SPF is. Tell me a little bit about the water-resistant piece. You know, I think yeah. now we're seeing we don't see waterproof anymore, but you see water-resistant. So how should we be interpreting that?
0: Yeah, the water-resistance reminds us that old terminology of waterproof, means that essentially some of the sunscreen will be coming off with time with like any water exposure or sweat, right? So water-resistant is probably a better terminology. And how it can be divided is the products anyways will have either a water-resistance of 40 minutes or 80 minutes. That essentially means that how much protection is provided with that much uh, when exposed to a, a certain water level content. If you actually look at the actual studies when they do these, it's actually is pretty intense. What, what people have to do is they have to actually go in like a water tub filled with water uh, for 20 minutes. They come outside for 20 minutes. They go back in 20 minutes. And so they're actually getting a lot of water. Actually, the one fault though is they're actually not wiping themselves off with a towel.
1: Oh yeah, that's when it all comes off. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's when it actually yes. comes off. So I think the big take-home message, the common sense is that when you're sweating, you're wiping it off, just reapply the sunscreen.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just thinking about- sunscreen and applications. You know, I remember growing up, people would say you got to put on your sunscreen an hour before you go outside. We know that's not true. What do you recommend for your for your patients?
0: Yeah, the best thing for when Uh, applying sunscreen is just to apply it, make sure you have it on adequately, uniformly, before you get that UV radiation exposure. Mm -hmm. Though the the labeling on the products will say to apply 15 to 30 minutes before, that's just because that's how the tests are conducted. So then they have to label it that way. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's important to emphasize to the patient just keep it simple, right? There's a story that one of my colleagues mentions, Dr. Louis, he says that there's a story of this patient that what he did was that he thought that the sunscreen would not work if he applied it 15 minutes before, if he did not apply 15 minutes before. So <laughs> then he didn't apply any at all. He got burnt. And that <laughs> shows you that if you don't keep things simple, then that you're probably going to harm yourself more, right? So just get the, get it on the skin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what, that's what I always say to people. If it's in a bottle, it's not really helping you. Um, so when we're looking at labels, you know, for the residents in the audience, they have to know stuff about filters and allergens and all that. So maybe let's take a second to just what are the different filters that they're going to be looking for?
0: Yeah, it's it's a good idea to be familiar with some of the sunscreen filters that you can see on, on a sunscreen bottle. And this is where you look at your ingredient list, and it'll be usually listed as medicinal ingredients. And in Canada, we have to remember in the Health Canada approves our sunscreens, uh, most of them. Mm-hmm. And we kind of are a hybrid system between what the U.S. is and the Euro- Europe is, right, what Europe is. And so in the USA, it's a over-the-counter but drug product and regulated by the FDA. In Europe, it's a cosmetic pro- uh, it's a cosmetic product.
1: Right.
0: Uh, we're in between. It is regulated by Health Canada under the over-the-counter drug products and as a natural health product as well and so when you look at the different sunscreen filters uh a, the reason why that's important because that's how it gets regulated in canada but the way the filters can be divided into is mineral filters and those are easy to remember so that's zinc oxide that's titanium dioxide and iron oxide would fit in this, and you we'll, might be seeing more of a role of iron oxide here in Canada. If you mm-hmm. go to Australia, they use iron oxide lots. Very, It's, it's a good product, provides good protection. And mineral filters are, are good because they do work against the UV spectrum, the visible spectrum. There is a m- big misconception. A lot of people think that mineral filters work by just... Reflecting off those UV Mm -hmm, rays. mm -hmm. But how they really work is that, still in the UV range, actually, they work primarily by absorbing and -hmm. they work as semiconductors. So they still are absorbing those high energy UV photons and it's converting it to lower forms of energy. And then in the visible spectrum, they are reflecting off rays, right? The good thing is, though, they do work quite well. One of the things is that the hard part about adherence with the mineral sunscreens is that they do keep create that chalky white appearance. Mm-hmm. But what's exciting now is that we're starting to see more of these tinted products. And you will see more. You see better technology with those micronized iron oxide particles and titanium dioxide that's uh, colored as well. So mm-hmm. that's going to make it better for uh, all types of skin types of patients. So, so that's something that we'll see more of. Okay. So then, with the um, with the other category, organic filters, that's mm-hmm. a little bit more complicated because we have a lot of pro- a lot of filters out there. For the residents, the way I easily uh, would say that you can remember them is usually they're either ones that start with O's, or they're salicylate <laughs> products, right? So, um, so the 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 O's are octanoxate. And octocrylene, oxybenzone, octosalate, right? Which we'll get into the, more of these type of filters. I'll, I'll go into them a little bit more about which okay. ones like are key for photoallergens. Uh, <laughs> PABA is in this category too, and Padimate O. Yeah. And then a good one to remember, of course, is avobenzone. And mm-hmm. if you actually look at the history of avobenzone and the FDA, and uh, the reason why it's a good one to know about, because that's the one that provides uva protection more in the uva1 spectrum Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and it is really important in the u.s they don't have that many options when it comes to the sunscreens right Mm -hmm. this is one of the few ones that they have in the uva1 spectrum that provides protection so that's avobenzone also called parcel 1789 right and then in Canada, we're lucky. We have some other ones that provide protection in the UV one, UV two spectrum. And That's things like a Campsol or mech, also known as Mexorol. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Mexorol SX, Mexorol LX, and then there's also Tinosorb that we have here too. So we have uh, other. We do have other options here. Those are the different, the organic filters. And so a common exam question for the residents would be, okay, which one is a a common photoallergen? And Mm -hmm. the answer to that is benzophenone-3, or also known as oxabenzone that we talked about. And the take-home message is with photoallergens, the photoallergies of sunscreens is that it is extremely, extremely rare. Mm -hmm. And though we say this is the most common photoallergen. I, I do think it depends on which of the filters are being most commonly used in sunscreen at the time that you know these right. studies are being conducted. Yeah. And so sometimes you can see a different trend over time, but it is very rare. So what you should always think about first is either irritation from the sunscreen product, what you should always think second to is polymorphous light eruption actually occurring in our patients, yeah. something like that instead.
1: Yeah we you know when you were like the most common is and i thought you were going to ask me and i felt a little you know i felt a little nervous there because i didn't know if i was going to get the answer right but fortunately i would have and i wish i knew that uh, the little tip about the o's um when i was studying <laughs> for my exam but that's many moons ago now <laughs> i think this might be a great time to take one of the questions from the residents
0: hi dr calia this is rob michelli one of the Durham residents from university of toronto My question is whether or not there is any reason to recommend an inorganic
1: sunscreen over an organic sunscreen to patients.
0: The one reason would be if you want to avoid a long uh, counseling discussion with our patients. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, uh, you know, things always change over time. There's different trends over time. Yes. And currently right now you will see with our organic filters right now, they just got a bad publicity out there. And I think really speaking, we just have to remind ourselves, a lot of these myths are not true. Mm -hmm. For example, and you will see this association, the, the filters that are used the most are the ones that get the most bashing. We see that Absolutely. with our with our you know with our medicines that we use in dermatology, the ones that've been available the longest, used commonly, this have a long list of side effects, right? That makes sense. And so that's why like if you look at organic filters like uh, oxybenzone is commonly used, octanoxid is commonly used and they're the ones that you, they they get that bad publicity, right? Uh, those mm-hmm. are the ones that are linked with causing environmental effects so with the coral reef story that we hear about and also with the hormonal effects as well, right? Right. And I think if I'll go into... I was just going to say,
1: like, maybe a little bit into that, because I I suspect some of our listeners will say, yeah, what's your take on that, Dr. Kelly? Yeah.
0: So with the coral reef story with organic filters like initially this was shown because of in vitro studies done and what they always do in these in vitro studies they use concentrations <laughs> that are like a million times <laughs> yeah. higher and you know something that will definitely just sound like you know of course it'll be toxic it's like something right. that like we don't use in everyday life right yeah and so with that they saw some bleaching effect in the coral reefs right we know that this is a phenomenon right now in, in our environment uh, in our environment, the question comes down to like, okay, is this due to global warming or other factors, right? Mm-hmm. Other downstream washes. Since this actually initially was alerted the coral rate there actually been actually a lot of studies done in the last year uh, published in the Environmental Toxicology journals. So independent mm-hmm. of us, dermatologists, toxicologists <laughs> have published this. And uh, this was presented actually at some of our meetings that we attend. And what they have shown and uh, is that actually the amounts that would need to be required with modeling data would be kind of what we talked about like a lot higher than that's used in sunscreen so it's actually not likely a factor of causing that bleaching in coral reefs. so it's not a factor but the problem is now the word is out there legislation has been changed in certain states in the usa and so that's what i say when i when i talk about that if you can take the time and discuss the actual current science as well known with this coral reef story you'll see that it's likely not a phenomenon now we know that with the studies that we published last year Mm -hmm. but there is that data out there so they we just have to talk about it
1: ever-changing story what about the hormone disruptor piece what's your your take on that
0: yeah so the the hormonal disruptor is another one of these in vitro studies done in animal studies at a thousand times more higher concentration and um the, you know what, this one actually like it does warrant exploration, right? Because there are a mm-hmm. few case reports, right? Of like, okay, is there, is there something happening here? And with the current, with the uh, study done by the FDA showing that there are certain sunscreen filters that are absorbed uh, over time when sunscreen, once again, though, is applied at high, high amounts, right? The ones that we suggested that people don't do. Uh, where they're applying their full body. But nevertheless, you do see that some of the sunscreen filters are absorbed, right? So it should mm-hmm. be studied. Uh, this one right here, like though, once again, it's that concentration is much higher. But I, I uh, that being said, though, this is something that's being further studied. We need more data. That's what the FDA is asking for right now is for further data for clarification of this. However, they even they do say that it's well known that the... Uh, benefits of using sunscreen, i.e. preventing skin cancer, outweigh these theoretical risks that are being discussed.
1: Yeah, thank you for clearing those up or keeping us up to date as of... uh the time of this recording <laughs> <So> <laughs> hopefully there won't be any other major sunscreen uh you know newsworthy events yeah. in the next uh, week or two
0: i think this, this is where we're like lucky that we do have other options kind of like other right. medicines like you know this is where like fine if somebody does not feel comfortable then right now sure use the mineral filter sunscreen
1: right let's take another question from a resident hi dr kalia this is anastasia muntianu from mcgill university my question is with physical sunscreen do they still need to be reapplied every 2 hours or do they generally have a longer duration of action
0: The good thing is right now the the like most organic filter sunscreens actually do last longer than 2 hours like mm-hmm. with the increased technology especially that filter that we talked about avobenzone more photo stable I like think that's the that's one of the ones that are not photostable, right? So mm-hmm. sunscreens nowadays have extra ingredients to make them photo- make a benzo more photostable. So it lasts longer than two hours. Some of the labeling of two hours is just because that's how long the studies were conducted for. Right. So they, even the organic ones last longer than two hours. The mineral ones last longer than two hours. And we can see that with the white reflection off our skin. Mm-hmm. But here, once again, the, the rate limiting factor usually for reapplication is that if it's being sweat off, being wiped off, then reapplication is required.
1: Right. So do you make any specific counseling recommendations about sunscreen containing lip balms or like specific coverage for the lips? When applying protection for the lips,
0: A is sometimes my patients find it hard to find products out there, right? Right. And uh, you know, one of the interesting stories is that uh, you would not guess this, but even yellow petrolatum, Vaseline does provide some protection. I and would not have rem- guessed that. We can remind ourselves. Yeah, exactly. We can remind ourselves of how sunscreens got credit to be used in North America. And uh, uh, have you heard of Red Vet Pet before?
1: Uh, no, but I, I probably should have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's actually quite interesting because how sunscreens became credited anyways, of first being used in North America is that there's uh, Red Veterinary Petrolatum. And okay. so essentially, this is like a derivative of crude oil. And that's how the derivative of that called Met, Met Pet was what was used first as sunscreens huh. in, in the US. And actually, that's what soldiers used in World War II to protect themselves from sunburns. So it was found to be very effective. Okay. So even, even that was found to be protective. And from there, we know the yellow petrolatum is uh, protective on the lips and it does stay on the lips. But truly speaking, though, the protection of that is probably not as great as what we have available now. Mm-hmm. So if you have one of these ones with either zinc oxide paste mm-hmm. or something else that apply, you can apply liberally on the lips, that does work uh, quite well
1: i mean this is more that was more of a personal question based on the fact that sometimes (laughs) when i swipe the the sunscreen and then i lick my lips i'm like oh my that is not the most flavorful event um but uh you know no harm done Um, the reality
0: actually is probably like even like um lipstick probably works better than that's true yeah
1: especially like a really heavily tinted one there but i don't have that option (laughs) everyone's walking around with you know heavy a heavy red lip this summer Okay, so let's shift from talking a little bit about the mechanics of sunscreen and sun protection to talking about the other part of sun awareness and, and, and why we uh, want to use all these protective mechanisms. And so what kind of things do you tend to counsel patients on in terms of you know what to look out for for skin cancers or what risk factors, what risk factors in addition to UV exposure do they need to be aware of? The person that I'm
0: worried about developing skin cancer the most are those people that have fair skin, Mm -hmm. the the person that has that blonde hair, red hair phenotype. Uh, Of course, sometimes it can be somebody with light brown hair, or darker brown, but if they have fair skin Mm -hmm. and then the lighter colored eyes as well. So that kind of phenotypic characteristics. Right. And then in terms of genetics, you know, there's a personal or family history of skin cancer. Of course, we have a heightened awareness of those individuals developing skin cancer mm-hmm. and then and then in terms of uh when you examine them depending on the type of skin cancer we talk about melanoma somebody with a, a lot of moles on their body uh, pre- predispose them to developing higher amounts higher levels higher concern for melanoma and then with basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma it could be the so similar factors, but uh, we talked about uh, increased number of sunspots. That's a marker of chronic sun exposure, right? So that's mm-hmm. probably why. And then, of course, the iatrogenic factors. So if somebody has been on immunosuppressive medications. If they received ionizing radiation in the past, mm-hmm. if they received uh, retanning beds before. Or uh, good thing is, like we we've done studies with phototherapy. It has not mm-hmm. been linked. But if they did receive our treatment before, that would be something that puts them at a higher risk of skin cancer. Right. So, so those are the characteristics of the individual. And then then the one that, of course, we want to screen out quicker is melanoma, because that right. metastasizes most readily. And so we look at those, we look at the features of melanoma. So the A, B, C, D, E features, A being asymmetry, so if one portion of it is asymmetric mm-hmm. and then border being irregular, so it's not smooth, you can't really outline the border. That's concerning. Color, color variation. So therefore, if there's more than one color present in the in, in the pigmented lesion, that's concerning. And diameter has been arbitrarily set at greater than six millimeters. And E is that piece of history that we can ask for if it's enlarging or evolving or changing over time.
1: Right. Um, Do you ever, uh, you know, I I find personally, it's a bit of a challenge when you do have that, you know, fair patient that has hundreds of um, maybe even clinically atypical nevi for those particular folks. Do you have any other advice that you provide? Like I I say sometimes say like, you know, Sesame (laughs) Street, you're looking for the one that doesn't belong or the ugly duckling. But do you like, you know, I find those a particular challenge. So do you have any tips or or are you just the same as me and you go, oh, I hope (laughs) I'm doing a really thorough
0: job yeah. here. So yeah, the patient with many pigmented lesions is always a challenge actually. And I find that those are the ones that if you look at all those, sometimes you can look at this ABCD features and they all fit some of those criteria. Right. Yes. And so therefore the atypical mole syndrome and therefore, it, it is something I think that we're lucky with experience as dermatologists that we're just able to recognize the ones right. that we're concerned about. And maybe it's the ugly duckling sign. I do think there's something more. I remember when I was a resident and training, doc, Dr. David McLean said that, oh, the biggest feature when detecting melanoma is just gestalt. And I'm like, what are you about, gestalt? <laughs> I'm like, no, we need, like, as a resident, you're always like, no, this <laughs> is- like, I need a checklist, man. That, <laughs> that we need a checklist. <laughs> and we need sort of criteria, right? And now when you practice more, you're like, yes, there is something where you to examining people that you can just say that one i'm not comfortable with correct and that's why i think that we actually learned during covid uh, uh when patients would actually send pictures of their of their uh, molds and i talked to my colleagues all of us felt unanimous that like you know we just need that patient there because there's something about having the presence and us comparing the mold to the rest of their body skin and Absolutely. other molds that we really are doing something to capture that melanoma
1: yeah. I, that whole concept of, of signature mole or, or gestalt. And I think you're exactly right. It, it's, you know, one of my, um, mentors at the time talked about, you know, developing a derm eye and you had to develop the derm eye and it takes a bit of time. <laughs> and I was like, what is he talking about? But it's very true. And now, you know, from a distance, you can go that, that one and that one. Um, and sometimes the learners go, well, how do you know? And it's like, well, I've just looked at thousands. Um, <laughs> But that's 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 not helpful. But okay, Um, back to talking about other skin cancer related um, sort of risks and things like that. There is a question from one of our listeners.
0: Hi, my name is Brian and I'm calling from Calgary. I've never had skin cancer, but I've had a lot of sun damage over the years and burns. uh, Should I see a dermatologist? Thanks for taking my call yeah, so the the concerns here is that uh, a sunburn does increase the risk of melanoma and the other skin cancers that we talked about. And if you do have a lot of moles, that also does increase the risk. So this, uh, it also would be helpful to know the other risk factors we discussed, you know, are you somebody with that fair skin phenotype, other risk factors for developing skin cancer? So this would be something that I would discuss in Canada. We first go to the family doctor, the general practitioner, and they get a referral, and then they would uh, triage the case accordingly, depending on those other risk factors. Right.
1: Yeah. Thinking about some of the other factors when you see multiple skin cancers, the residents did have this question.
0: Hi, Dr. Kalia. This is Dr. Saima Ali, a PGY3 from UBC. My question is, what is the latest evidence of when patients should be screened for a genetic mutation if they have multiple melanomas? Thank you. So if somebody has multiple melanomas, majority, uh, this is one of the things over time, that majority of my patients, like it's not uncommon for certain people to develop uh, multiple of these superficial melanomas. I I, I right. do see it. Uh, the ones I get more concerned about, if somebody does have a history of like uh, another cancer, like pancreatic cancer, mm-hmm. then I would uh, uh, test for germline mutations, such as CDK mutations, mm-hmm. and and we do have a program here at the BC Cancer Agency that they do these testings based on those criteria.
1: Right we know that patients that have different skin tones tend to have different responses to light exposure. And so do you at all adjust the way that you do counseling with respect to sun protection uh, for patients that have different skin tones?
0: The the lighter skin tone individuals, primarily the acute side effects we see is burning and then long-term side effect, the big concern is skin cancer. Whereas in darker skin tone individuals, what we see is, uh, more of a darkening of the skin, and we see exacerbation of pigmented conditions such as melasma. Right. And then chronically, what these individuals are concerned about is pigmented spots, right? Those sunspots mm-hmm. in Asian skin that people get, or aging of the skin as well. And I think that's extremely important because that does kind of provide a difference of how we should tailor our sun protection. There's an increasing now we're recognizing that, and that's how we should be tailoring our sun protection. So in a fair skin individual, lots of that is what we talked about of the whole package of sun protection. And ultimately, we want to prevent those burns and high energy photons uh, from uh, causing skin cancer. And it's both UVB and UVA. But in a darker skin tone individual, when you're looking at it, if we want to prevent pigmentation and exacerbation of conditions such as melasma, it is that spectrum of UVA and also visible light that we want to protect that individual. So therefore, there's no doubt that if you avoid sun exposure, you do the shade, uh, wear protective clothing, that provides against good protection against that whole spectrum. Right. But then when you come into that sunscreen, then what you want to make sure is that you're protecting against that UVA visible range. And that's why actually we're starting to see that more of uh, more options out there of those tinted sunscreen blocks, right? right. So that you're looking at that um, mineral filters and therefore uh, that, and that uh, special technology of, of how it can be pigmented and those darker skin tones so and OBS chalky white appearance to prevent right. those concerns that darker skin tone individuals have.
1: Right. So I think we've covered a lot of ground about sun protection and sun awareness. What kind of things are happening with the CDA for Sun Awareness Month this year, as it being the entire month of May?
0: This year with the Canadian Dermatology Association, we have decided to go virtually. Uh, There's a lot of planning was going on with COVID. We thought that would be most effective to deliver our messages virtually. And that's why we also did extend it to a month-long campaign. Mm -hmm. What you have seen already happening is in the first week, we have discussed about early detection and things to watch out for with uh, self-examining your skin. Mm -hmm. We did launch Check Your Skin Day on Sunday, May 8th. And then on week two, we went on to prevention. So those things that you should be doing to protect yourself from excessive sun exposure. Uh, from starting from 8 may 9th uh, which will extend to may 27th is our tiktok challenge so if you have not done that yet make sure you have entered the tiktok <laughs> challenge that's all about telling people how you can be sun smart without saying it so that's okay that's a good messaging and the, the, the winner like will it. get a prize okay and so after this what we'll be seeing in week three is uh, all about sun safety and you can ask your burning questions to a board certified dermatologist so anything that you're excited about or something you want answered you can ask to a board certified dermatologist and the instagram live sun safety question and answer event will take place on thursday may 19th from 7 to 7 30. in our last week uh, what we'll do is w- features of when to see a dermatologist when to see a board certified dermatologist of course gonna be dependent on the area that you live in but we'll give information of that in our last week in terms of resources we do ask you to check our website dermatology.ca and our campaign website checkyourskin.ca and you can follow us on social media we are on all the different types of social media on instagram twitter facebook linkedin youtube and tiktok
1: wow well that sounds like an action-packed may and i'm really excited to see all those things roll out and i'm really excited to see the tiktoks i might have to get in on that listen I want to thank you so much, Sunil, for joining me, talking about all this great stuff, giving me some pearls. I personally learned a number of items uh, today, which is great. And I want to thank you for your time and thank you for all the work that you do on behalf of the Canadian Dermatology Association as the chair of the National Sun Awareness Working Group. So you and the entire group, I just wanted to give kudos for planning such a great month ahead. Thanks again, Kerry, for having
0: me. And once again, the take-home message is have fun, but stay safe with the sun.
1: I love it. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. And that wraps up season three of Dermalogs. I was joined by Dr. Sunil Kalia, who's the national chair for the Canadian Dermatology Association's Sun Awareness Working Group, and is also an associate professor at UBC. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. We will be back for season four. That's it for this episode and this season of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. Until next season, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.